Welcome to My Hard Drive Died, episode number three. In this podcast, we talk about hard drives and pretty much everything about them. You know, data recovery um, from that side all the way to the side of the actual hardware that makes up a hard drive and how it works. And to join us, I'm happy to have Scott Moulton, who is the creator of MyHardDriveDied.com, which is a data recovery website. You can go there and you could, uh, if you have data you need recovered off your drive, he is the man to do it. He is a hard drive wizard, and I'm happy to have him here. Now, before we get into the interview with Scott, I want to make a quick announcement that um, on podnuts.com, you're able to buy now, or pre-order at least, the Laptop Repair Video Collection. So if you're interested in knowing how to fix laptops and you ever wanted to know how to do that, I've put together a collection of videos in HD. It's 10 hours, over 10 hours, of HD video on how to fix laptops. It's all done personally by myself. Uh, all the laptop repairs I've been doing the last couple months, I've taped them, and I narrate over them, and I go over pretty much everything you need to know about laptops. You can pre-order them for $47 uh, up until September 1st, and then after September 1st, the uh, which is actually the release date, the videos will be on sale for $67. So if you want to buy early, you could save a little bit of money. Uh, if not, t- definitely buy them when they're released, and uh, you will be able to fix laptops by the time you're done watching those videos. Okay, now for the interview with Scott. Okay, Scott, thanks for joining us today. This is the third episode of My Hard Drive Died. How you doing? I'm doing pretty good. How are you? Very good. And um, your site is myharddrivedied.com. And tell us again, a little quick little thing about your site, and then uh, we'll go over some of the exciting stuff you've been doing the last couple of weeks. Well, basically, we're a data recovery company, and uh, we also run a forensics company side by side. So we're doing some of the same processes for data recovery that we would be doing for forensics. And uh, it's basically on my site. I have a lot of presentations and stuff that I've done at previous conferences and things that I've spoke at. We'll actually uh, have postings and videos and stuff up for do-it-yourself kind of repair stuff. I'm, I kind of give it away and, and try to teach people how they can do their own thing that, you know, if they want to send it to me and we want to go through the professional side, I'm happy to do that. But, uh, you know, for the people who don't want to spend $1,000 or more, that they, they can do it locally on their own. Wow. You give a lot of stuff away. Well, thanks. Yes, I try. <laughs> You're a traveling man, too. You've been talking at some conferences. What's been exciting the last couple of weeks? Well, this past weekend was uh, DEF CON 17. So this was like my fifth or sixth speech or something there, uh, years in a row. And so I I kind of gave a little bit of a different talk this time. Uh, um, usually I do physical repair, like how to actually repair heads and platters on the disc and try to give like a 50-minute presentation on that. But this time I, I took it to the logical side because I get these questions about RAID arrays all the time. And we've previously done a talk on RAID here. So yeah. Um, so it was kind of a, an, an emphasis on that kind of side where I actually walked through how to repair a RAID array and how if you don't know anything about the order of the disks and, and what they are, how you can actually tell just by visually looking at pictures and stuff on the RAID array uh, how it is assembled and how you can guess at what the correct configuration is. You can do this from pictures? Yes, that's uh, primarily how I do it most of the time. There are some tools that try to do it for you automatically or try to present a you know a best guess. But if you don't know how the rate rate is configured, then what do you do? And that's basically what this whole idea was is that I can uh, I can do it fairly quickly by 
just not extracting. Most people will start a scan, and they will scan from beginning to end of a disk and whatever files they find, and that's what they use. Well, I have a method of just basically doing it in a couple of minutes where I can get samples of pictures off the hard drive, and by looking at the samples of pictures, I can tell what the arrangement and the order of the RAID array is. It'll visually kind of look kind of like those puzzles where you have the sliding pieces that yeah. you slide around. Yeah. And uh, I can kind of tell by looking at that how many disks there are, how many slices there are, what the slice size is, and which order the disks go in. And uh, it's a little bit of work, but you can visually tell by looking at the pictures. And, and in some cases, uh, MP3s, sound files, can give you an idea about it. It's not quite as quick in, as looking at pictures. So, um, so I also had some sound samples and stuff that I played at, at DEF CON as well. Okay, you got me intrigued here. So, you mean what do you look at in these pictures? Like when they were created, or how how much of the picture is actually um, presenting itself? Or well, if you take a you know kind of a, a look down from a standpoint of let's extract a picture and a JPEG. If a JPEG is corrupt, there's a couple of ways that you can actually kind of tell what the picture and stuff looks like. So, for instance, in most cases on a RAID array. The slice size is going to be somewhere between, you know, it's it's usually going to be at least 32K or larger in most cases. You can have really small slice sizes, but let's say it's an 8K slice size. Most of the time, a thumbnail, a small thumbnail will fit under that size. So if you were to, say, have a 2-meg picture on your hard drive and it was sliced up over the RAID array into different arrangements mm-hmm. and you do a search for a JPEG header – so you could easily go like to um, any any uh, you know Wikipedia and look at JPEG, and it'll tell you that your JPEG header is going to be FFD8FF. So you do a search for that, then you search for the end of a JPEG, which is going to be FFD9. Mm-hmm. And when you search for that, you'll actually get the thumbnail, which is sometimes stored in the beginning of the picture. You will find that as well because it has the same signature as the full size picture. Okay. And if you save the thumbnail, if you save that information. When you look at it in Explorer, it will automatically tell you what the size of the picture is. So you could say, you know, look, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, dimensions are 2,600 by 3,600 or something like that. You can take those two dimensions and plug them into a calculator, basically a, uh, like, an, you know, if you go look for file sizes, like how to calculate your file size, you know, on megapixels. There are megapixel calculators on the web, and you can plug those two numbers in, and it'll tell you how big the picture is supposed to be. Okay. So, so if you take that, you can guesstimate by looking at your slice sizes. So if a picture is supposed to be two megs, you can, you can even though the whole picture won't display, you'll get the corrupt data. You'll just open it up, and you'll see the beginning of a slice size. You'll see something that looks normal. Then you'll start seeing these things that look like they're rotating, like parts of the picture are not in the right place, but they're still parts of the picture. And then eventually you'll get to a spot where the data is just corrupt, and you can't see it, and it just looks like a big gray area or something. Okay. If, if you know the picture is supposed to be two megs, you can basically divide that thing up into segments that would say, here's where 32K is. Here's where 64K is, here's where 128K is, and so on and so on, all the way down through the whole picture. And then whichever pieces are actually contiguous that look correct, that's what your slice size is going to be. You'll be able to actually see that the beginning of your picture, you know, like if it's a wall, you know, will the wall be intact down to what would have been 64K or 32K or 128? And you'll be able to actually tell. And I demonstrate this, and pretty soon the video will be published, so it'll make sense to people. Um, I have put my slides 
up on my website. So if people want to see this, I actually have like a little chart and a little graph kind of broken out so you can see it. But uh, if you go to my hard drive died and you go to presentations and you go to DEF CON 17, there's slides there at the top that will show you piece by piece how I break it down and then the order of the drives, how you rotate through them. So it starts to look like a jigsaw puzzle and you can kind of start to just visually see how it's supposed to be laid out. And then you'll be able to determine what which drive is bad or... Um, no, we're beyond what the bad drive is. So, okay. so for instance, um, that's all my other videos are all on physical repair. So, you know, if you have a RAID 5 array and you have, let's say, a minimum of three drives, mm -hmm. you have to have two drives working. And so out of that two drives, the one that died last is the one that you need to be working. So, you know, let's say two drives physically died. You have to, you have to at least figure out which of those drives died and fix one of those drives or fix both of them and then test them to see which one is the correct one but you need two drives working and you take those two drives and you fake them by adding in the third fake drive uh, which is called a missing disk in some applications so there are raid reconstruction programs that help you do that and all i'm looking for is to select the order of the drives i'm not looking for it to do anything special okay and then spit out the a picture a sample of a picture so i show that in in the videos and in the demo and stuff too so uh like in six weeks i'll be putting the video out so people actually see the video of that breakdown huh. but um i gotta but, check yeah. that out so it's it basically shows you how to repair a raid array is that what it's doing yeah, exactly. Okay. Like like my earlier ones are all about how to get that physical disk working again. Right. And then assuming that you did that those functions and you have that physical disk working, now let's assemble the RAID array. I see. <laughs> and from what I understand, you're using some pretty interesting pictures to keep people's interest. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, that's correct. <laughs> I've got some very interesting I, – I, uh, I have this female assistant who works for me who used to do some modeling. And, you know, when she heard that I might have some copyright problems with putting, you know, semi-pornographic or slash uh, uh, they're not really pornographic they're just <laughs> hinting of uh, of that basically with lingerie and stuff <laughs> she allowed me to use her pictures in my presentation so she gave me 500 of her modeling pictures and I I actually loaded up this raid array with all of her pictures and then I broke the raid array so that those samples would come up uh, in the in the chopped up pictures and right. stuff that I was using for my samples that's a brilliant, brilliant way to keep people's interest. <laughs> oh, they were very interested, I'll tell you. They were, I don't think they really cared much about Raider Ray. They just wanted to get to the next picture. <laughs> That's awesome. What, uh, for, for people who don't know, and a couple people out there might not know, um, what is DEF CON? Like, what do, you, what do people do there? And, you know, if somebody wants to go check it out, what do they do? Well, uh, DEF CON is a hacking event, basically. It's a, uh, it's a giant conference that has grown over the years. This is, I think it's the oldest uh, conference that's been around. This was its 17th year, and you can go to defcon.org and look at all the topics and all the things. They have it every year, uh, usually the beginning of August uh, in Vegas. And uh, it's usually at the Riviera, but it has been at other hotels previously. So, you know, you kind of watch from year to year. But they usually have about 10,000, you know, 8,000 to 10,000 people there. And it will be all different kinds of topics. It'll be um, – you, you can just look at the speakers list and see whoever submits that actually, you know, gets a very interesting topic that people want to see will be accepted as a speaker. There's about 100 speakers, and uh, they will run four or five tracks. They even had um, – um, you know, Adam from the Mythbusters or something uh, was there this year. He actually gave a talk on failure 
and uh, and that was a very well received talk. But there's there's all kinds of people from the security industry that will be there that are you know semi famous people in the community. Um, and there's all kinds of other things besides just the talks going on. There's games and contests. There's a professional version of like capture the flag where like you know who knows Navy SEALs or whoever qualifies will come. Uh, people all over the country come to do this capture the flag game to. You know, it's kind of like a defend your network while we attack other people's networks. <laughs> and there's there's amateur ones as well, and they have some robotics things going on. But there's there's a whole ton of different kinds of games. But primarily people go because, you know, everybody's accepted there. It doesn't matter, you know, if you have green hair and one leg. It doesn't make any difference. <laughs> you're you're a computer guy, and, uh, and you're there, or girl, and you're there um, with a community of your peers. It's very, awesome. Yeah, it sounds very cool. I, I haven't been to almost any cons. Actually, I don't think I've been to one con, be it DEF CON or any of the other conferences. Um, so, you know, I'll make a quick announcement here in case anybody has not heard. I, I sold my computer repair business, and this is going to free up a lot of time for me to go to conferences and podcast more. I'm going to talk about it in maybe another podcast in a little bit more detail, but um, I'm probably going to go start going to these conferences and checking them out and, um, and um, you know, reporting back, or maybe doing some live podcasts from these conferences. But and Scott, you what other con- you speak at a bunch of conferences? What are some of the upcoming ones if people want to actually see you? Um, they might be in the area. What are some of your upcoming conferences you're going to be doing? Well, there's uh, some of the next big ones because uh, there's typically like the round of four or five that almost everybody you know professionally does. So uh, so I know that um, well in September I'm actually teaching a class in San Diego. So if anybody is uh, you know, cares to meet me in San Diego or something for dinner or something, let me know. Uh, but I'll be, uh, I'll be teaching a class for SANS there. Then in October, I'm going to be, uh, I think there's an HTCIA meeting in Kentucky, and I'm going to be there uh, speaking at their security meeting. What's HDCIA? Um, uh, High Tech Crime International Association. Okay. Um, then after that, uh, late um, in October – is Freaknik, and Freaknik is in uh, Tennessee, and it's a small 300-person con. It's uh, about its 13th or 14th year in uh, existence, and it's put on by a, a guy named Sky Dog, which is an, he's an excellent uh, presenter and does a great job with uh, putting this con on. Um, and then following that, you're looking at things like uh, Torcon is in there somewhere. Torcon is in San Diego as well. Torcon is one I have spoke at before. Um, it's a toss-up right now whether or not I'll go to Torcon this year, but there's a high potential for it. What's Torcon? Uh, Torcon, Tor stands for root, R-O-O-T, which okay. is you know the root user in mm-hmm. a Linux system, uh, Unix system. Uh, and so it's called Torcon, and it's a – it's a very well-respected, very um, high-end security conference that uh, usually is done at the uh, one of the main civic centers or something at um, in San Diego, uh, the San Diego Conference Center or something. Uh, it's a it's an excellent con. I've spoken there two or three years, um, and they usually have some little workshop beforehand too. And we've talked about putting on like a little how to repair your hard drive kind of presentation as well too like a little workshop but um it hasn't hasn't come to be yet so it might be coming up who knows we'll see but uh torcon is an excellent convention and so you know even if i don't go speak i think it's an excellent one for anyone to go to um and then on the flip side in uh usually sometime around february or march there's schmoocon which is in washington dc and schmoocon uh again they sell out of tickets really fast they're considered one of the best security conferences uh in the u.s and maybe in the world. And they basically have uh, about 1,300, 1,400 people usually there every year. 
uh, with the same kind of lineup with maybe uh, you know 60 or 70 speakers. And it's a, it's an excellent conference. I think it's uh, fantastic. I've spoke there three maybe yeah three years in a row now. So uh, so I'll probably be there again this year. Cool. Now that's a little closer to me. I'm gonna go to that one. Yeah, it's an excellent say. conference. You would not be disappointed. Your your issue is going to be you have to know when tickets go on sale and you have to be fast. Oh, really? That bets yeah. that that they, uh, sell, yes. sell it out. Okay. They sell out really quickly. Um, however, you know, being that you're press, uh, there's a possibility they're under a press license or something. And uh, and since I know the people, it might be helpful. You know, I might be able to put in a good word there. All so right. we can do. <laughs> All right, Scott. <laughs> All right. I don't, <laughs> I don't know that I can do anything, That's but okay. I'll, That's a good I'll try. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks. All right. Cool. Well, and it's funny, you, you know, you you're talking you go to all these security conferences and you know what you do is very much hardware based right like as far as the hard drives and that kind of thing that just goes neck and neck with security as far as you know software the software problems that people are having with security too right yeah uh you know a lot of these conferences say we're a security conference but a, a lot of them care about you know hacker topics they want something that's interesting and new and they want good presenters and you know that's the other thing is too is that a lot of tech people might not be the best presenters and so part of the problem is is that you know even if you have something that's really a good meaty topic if you're a bad presenter it kind of bores people and right. they, you know, leave the room unreal, you know, unsatisfied or right, something. And right. I, I think over the years between, you know, and I didn't just all of a sudden become a good presenter. I went to, uh, I went to Toastmasters for a number of years. I did sales for a number of years, uh, technical sales and things. So it really helped, you know, lean in that direction so that you can actually be a decent speaker and be energetic and, and exciting at the same time while you're on stage. And I think that that's kind of the thing is that they're looking for a good meaty technical topic with a really good presenter because there's always like those five or six people who bring people out of the woodwork to come to these conferences that, you know, if, if I've had people, you know, fly from other countries to come and see me speak just because of I'm doing hard drives and they care about hard drives and they, and they just want to meet me. Sure. I mean, it's valuable data. Definitely. Yeah. Well, I mean, you do a great job with this podcast, so it's, you, de- you could tell you definitely have the experience with speaking. So, Well, thank you. Sure. Well, let's get into uh, some, some stuff here. I actually had a question. Um, I had a question, and it's funny. I was looking at different emails that people had sent me that they wanted to ask you, and I only have one here lately, and it's basically the same question I was going to ask. Um, let me just pull it up real quick. It's from Richard, and let's see if I can get it up here real quick. I don't have it, but here's, I'll find it a little bit later, but here's basically the gist. And this is what I had. I had a problem with this in my computer repair shop and the new owners of the shop that I've, I've sold to, they're having the same problem. They need a tool, right? And probably everybody does a good tool to allow you to determine whether your hard drive is bad or not from the, to, to like, to the extent that, um, to determine whether should you buy a new drive for the customer or should you still use the existing drive? What tool should you use, Scott? And like, what what is the the point at which you say I have to buy a new drive for this person? Okay, so uh, so you know, here's the primary thing: is that uh, there are a lot of tools that you can do that are for pay, and you know what what you know testing tools and things like that that do you know butterfly and whatever test. The majority of them are all doing some of the same functions, which I would say most of the time for most testing tools you don't need to pay for if you're just trying to determine the state of the drive um you know there, there there are some reasons to like 
go into more advanced software and hardware to actually do data recovery. But if you're just trying to say, you know, what's the status of this drive? Is it usable? Can I actually run through some things? Um, there's there's two main programs that I use because here's your trick is that a lot of people go, hey, I hook up my hard drive to my motherboard and when I boot, it doesn't show up in the BIOS. And if, if that's the case and you're trying to do a recovery, uh, the BIOS may not be a good example of being able to communicate with this drive or get the data back, which is what a lot of people base it on, whether or not you can communicate with this drive through the BIOS. And it's not always necessary. Um, the drives can communicate with the chipset through the ATA controller directly. So as long as you have some tool that can actually communicate with the drive through the ATA command set off the motherboard, and that does not that means no USB. That means you're not doing this with USB. Right. It's got it's got to be plugged into some controller that you can communicate with. SATA? You can actually, Could you SATA too? Uh, yeah, yeah. So it doesn't matter if it's uh, you know, those are just changes in interface. So it doesn't matter whether or not it's a you know, because even like the ones that come out of a laptop, which are ZIF sockets, those are actually still PETA. They're just a different configuration for their wiring. And same thing for SATA. Uh, it's just a different configuration. So you can actually communicate with them using the ATA command set. So okay. you just have to have a motherboard that supports whatever that current command set is and a bridge board or an adapter to change that. So uh, so as long as you've got that, you can hook a SATA drive up to a PETA connector and actually run it off of an old motherboard if you wanted to. Um, I suggest having something that has the newest rev of the ATA specs on it. Like right now we're at ATA 8. So you would want to have a, a you know an updated motherboard so that you could communicate with the newest versions of the SATA drives. Uh, for you to actually make any any progress with that, but the tool that I would use primarily is uh, called MHDD. That would be my first choice. Is uh, MHDD from uh, HDD Guru? So HDDGuru.com. That's uh, uh, written by uh, 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 an excellent guy. His name's Dimitri. He's uh, he's got a whole test routine and everything that's already done to communicate with the drive. And so for free, you can actually at least do some basic tests with this software to find out the status of the drive. It also will do a scan mode where you can actually say, how long is it taking for each sector to communicate with me? So you can actually see good sectors, bad sectors, how long they're taking. Because uh, normally a sector is still good up to like 600 milliseconds. So a good drive will respond, uh, especially current drives, will respond in like a couple of milliseconds at most, you know, maybe six, seven milliseconds at most. Okay. Um, and if you go beyond that, if you go up to 300 milliseconds, then you start to look at, hey, these are some, you know, old sectors or they're going bad. And you go up to 300 milliseconds, then you start having, you know, even more problems. And that's with the assumption that you're not having media damage or some other thing going on. Um, so that can kind of give you a good idea about whether or not you can communicate with the drive. Uh, one of the other things is, is that smart data, um, smart to the hard drive, smart is the self-monitoring uh, analysis and reporting technology. Mm -hmm. Smart as a whole is worthless to the drive. The drive doesn't need smart to function. Right. Smart was added in as a reporting process, but sometimes what happens is the smart data itself uh, gets corrupt. <laughs> and, and when well, that's the data, useless, isn't it? Yeah, yeah it's, uh, there are times where the smart data can get corrupt, and what will happen is your hard drive goes in it, it loads all of its normal things during its boot process, during its initialization process. Then it gets to a spot where it says, now I'm going to load the smart logs. And if the smart logs were corrupt, there may be a piece of code in the drive 
that you know has very little error correction from a standpoint of hey did this piece of code that i load was it right was this was this log file right and it may cause what's called a firmware exception and then the drive will actually just stop loading it will just get an exception and just basically you know fail like any other piece of software so so the smart data loading actually tells you a lot because if you're able to see smart data, then you know that you've made it through the fundamentals of the drive. You made it through uh, the, the drive being able to start up and read the SA area, the system area of the drive, which contains things like the serial number and the model number and, uh, and code and test routines and things like that. Well, how do you um, know if it made it through smart? You mean you wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to tell. It would just drive would just work, you're saying. Um, yeah, at that point in time, if you were like an MHDD and you requested smart data from the drive. Oh, you're talking about using MHDD for this. Okay. Yeah, right. So so, so here's kind of the thing is that you go, hey, what kind of problem am I having? Am I having a firmware problem or am I having some physical media problem? And so just by the indication of I've been able to read the model number and the serial number from the drive and then loaded the smart table, I can request that data using MHDD. And I'll at least know I've made it through those functions. And so you can kind of you know, clear your mind, at least from a standpoint of you're probably not dealing with uh, some, you know, there, there are some exceptions, but some PCB board problems mm -hmm. or some, uh, you know, physical problems with firmware. Okay. There, there are some issues with certain boards, like for instance, um, you could have a PCB board that has an error. The printed circuit board on the hard drive has an error. Like you can read 50% of the drive, but then once you get past the 50%, it doesn't work anymore. Right. So, tip, so typically your test routine should be, hey, I want to test the beginning of the disk, the middle of the disk, and the end of the disk. You don't need to test the whole disk. Right. You might want to just test those three areas and see if you can read content from LBA blocks in those three areas of the disk so that you can at least determine, do I have some problem with my board versus some, some other issue with the drive? I see. All right. So MHDD, I'm on the website now. It's at the, right. it's at the very bottom if you go into software. Right. Now, one thing I want to point out is that there's two versions of MHDD. Like the current version is 4.6. Okay. And 4.6 does not have what's called a terminal mode in it. So you'll see that, it, that it, the, oldest ver the older version... 4.5 has terminal in it. And what that means is kind of like hyperterm in Windows. Like in DOS, you actually had a terminal that you could talk to over a serial port and communicate with certain hard drives, uh -huh. primarily Seagate hard drives. So you can get this cable that's kind of a cheap cable for like 25 bucks and um, all of the Seagate hard drives the the serial there's a serial port where the jumpers are that say master and slave mm -hmm. and so on like you take those off and you can put a cable um, and so you have transmit receive and ground and all the Seagate drives will tell you almost everything about them through the serial port <laughs> so now that means you have to have a terminal to actually be able to talk to it so right. if you look at if you get version 4.5 it has the built-in DOS terminal where you can hook the serial cable up to the, to the hard drive, to a Seagate hard drive, only Seagate hard drive, and uh, and request data from it. And it'll tell you everything that's going on. It'll tell you initialization phase, what kind of errors. And you can pass commands to the Seagate hard drives as well through the terminal to, uh, to figure out whether or not it's healthy or not healthy. And some of those uh, in the forums on that same site on mhdd.com, there's also some Seagate commands. But I have to warn you, if you're going to do this and you're going to get this $25 cable and you're going to hook it up and you're going to look at the Seagate command, the, once you're in the terminal, it is not a typewriter. Do not just start hitting keys and do not just start randomly doing things. It is not a typewriter. You need to know which keys you're hitting and why you're hitting them. 
in order for it to be a safe process. But you can look at the content as it displays things. So it will tell you errors and will tell you, do I have a head error? Do I have uh, what's called a pending bug? You'll actually see these problems going by on the screen and you'll know what's going on with your Seagate hard drives. Um, not so lucky on the Western Digitals and the others that you can do the analysis that way. But um, for Seagate drives, it's great to actually use that to do that. So you can mess it up if you're in the terminal and you start typing stuff. Yes, I would say you you can you can potentially mess it up. There are certain things like a you know a period will give you a status bit back. So if you okay. actually are typing like you know I love you period, you may I don't know you may just you know mess up. It's not a typewriter. Okay. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Now some of the other tools you might want to try because here's your problem with MHDD is that it's a completely a DOS application. Mm -hmm. So let's say you've got some you know newer you know, SATA board that, you know, you don't have the extensions and the bias to work for or something like that. And you mm -hmm. can't talk to them through normal means. Right. Um, you may have to have something like, for instance, if you're using eSATA or something, you may have to have something that works in Windows that you can communicate with the drive at least to be able to tell if there's something going on. Um, so that you have the Windows drivers start up because so many things are dependent upon Windows drivers these days. Um, you may want to use a tool like Victoria. There's a there's a tool called Victoria that's from a Russian site, and there it's hard to find the English version, but if you search for it, you'll find it. Um, it was updated in December of 2008. But Victoria is similar to MHDD in many functions, but it's a Windows tool, so you can actually see some content going around and what you can actually communicate with the drive and talk to it. Okay. And it does some of the same features, like you know, tell me how many sectors that I'm talking to and how fast they're talking to it. But you also need to be cautious because you are in Windows. And that means that if I do other functions in Windows, so if I stop, you know, I go to a command prompt and I type DIR, you're going to slow down the process that Victoria is using. So you'll get improper reporting. So you've got to, like, not use the computer while you're using Victoria or you'll get some functions that are delayed because of that. What do you like better, the MHDD or Victoria? Um, I like MHDD better, but I like to start with MHDD. Uh, MHDD does some other cool things from a command prompt, like uh, I can reset HPAs like the host protected area on a hard drive. Um, what the host protected area does is it uh, it allows you to take a large hard drive and say, I'm smaller. And hmm. every other, every piece of software, everything you boot will will respect that. And so I could take a 200 gig hard drive and make it a 40 gig if I need to. And the reason that's valuable is, um, so for instance, I'm doing a data recovery and I clone a hard drive that may be only 40 gigs. Well, if I just scan that hard drive, let's say the partition's messed up and for some reason I can't get the table to work correctly. If I scan the hard drive, it's going to scan the whole hard drive from beginning to end unless I use something that you know resizes that. Um, so if I say I want my HPA to be equal to the geometry of this other hard drive, it will lock those sectors down and I will only be looking at the sectors that I care about and not the rest of the drive. As far as I'm concerned, the drive will not be 200 gigs anymore. Sure. So that's a that's a very valuable feature. Um, it's also valuable to be able to reset that feature. Um, the reason it initially existed was, you know, if you remember back in the days when like Gateway was trying to send out machines, they wanted to have the DVDs on the computer instead of having to send you a set of C DVDs and CDs. Uh, so so they basically requested that they added this new feature called HPA, the host protected area, so we could have this area that was outside the user area to store these disks. So that, you know, basically the user was paying for it and not getting CDs or DVDs anymore. And I remember that used to be a big deal. People were all upset. 
Right, you know, hey, right. I'm not getting a DVD. Well, what happens if my drive dies? And so they came out with this method that had a little tool that said back up your you know, DVDs. Right. And it's like it always cost the user, however you looked at it. And there was really no big cost benefit to us. That, you know, they didn't save us 25 bucks. Right, but, right, right. You know, whatever. But huh. that's, uh, that's how that came about. And now it's used for other functions. Uh, you can – because the funny thing is you can do the opposite too, which is you can take like um, – there's JBOD drives, if you know what JBOD drives are. Yeah, we talked uh, about them a little bit. Yeah, so a part of the you know idea of RAID, but they're not really RAID. It stands for but, just a bunch of disks, right? Yeah, just a bunch of disks. But <laughs> you could take a one, you could take two disks and you can bind them together. And so you could have like two 250 gig disks, and you can put an HPA on the first disk that says I am 500 gigs. And as long as you have a bridge board between the two, it'll actually treat the end of one disk at the beginning of the next disk. So you'll end up with this, uh, you know, very large drive. Hmm. Uh, and so that's how some of these tools, uh, like Lacy, Lacy, actually, <laughs> you know, has some some disk that will actually have that uh, HPA setup, so that when you are using their, you know, bound drive, that they actually think it's a larger drive. Huh. That's interesting. It's good stuff, and um, well, <clears throat> let's go back to MHDD, right? Let's say, let's say, say, is there, is there like one test you could run where you could uh, say, okay, I have to replace this drive, or is it not that simple? Like, if there's one bad sector, would you, would you consider replacing the drive? No, I wouldn't consider replacing the drive for one bad sector. You have bad sectors on every drive, but there's the issue is is that how many bad sectors? How, what do you consider to be a bad sector? Because the more sectors you have that are slower than say 350 milliseconds, the slower the drive is going to respond. Uh, and so there are some areas where you can kind of determine what a bad sector is, but there's a maximum number. Um, the size of the drive has a percentage, and the number of sectors that can be bad that will fit into the table is a percentage of that drive. So it really just depends on the drive, but you've got a maximum number. So you may only have like on a 40 gig drive, maybe, you know, 3000 sectors that can be bad before it fills the table up and then it's not usable anymore. I see. So you want to make sure that you don't arbitrarily create bad sectors so that it fills up that table beyond usage of the drive. Cause I could tell it, you know, any sector that's beyond, you know, 50, 50 milliseconds, kill it and just not do that. I and there's see. a function inside of MHDD that will allow me to refurbish a drive and do that basically. Really? That's interesting. Yeah. There's cool. a what's called a destructive scan. So you can actually do a destructive scan, which is it will destroy the data in the process. Yeah, but yeah. Um, if you want a function that's similar to because the, the MHDD has a couple of different ways it can actually deal with the data. But initially, the command you'd want to use is scan. Okay. And scan brings up a little box, and it says, what do you want to do? Right. And one of the options is remap. And remap will be like, okay, I've got a drive. It's kind of like spin right from that standpoint. It looks at the drive and says, look, I got a sector, and I can recover the data from the sector, but it's kind of bad. It doesn't really fit into this, so I'm going to remap the data that I read from the bad sector to a new location, and it remaps that data. And we'll basically kind of like revitalize a almost dead drive with bad sectors on it so that you can use it again. I, I don't recommend that you continue to use a drive that has had bad sectors in that location that made it usable. But if you have a lot of them, I certainly would consider, you know, this is only going to be a test drive or I'm going to, you know, right. use it for some junk in the office. Well, um, let me let me just tell you this then because I, I wanted to ask you this too. A lot of times I would use C tools on uh, to test out hard drives and I'd use it on any manufacturer of hard drives no first question is is it okay to run c tools on a non-seagate hard drive will it still be accurate uh 
Yeah, I mean, I think you're fine with regards to that. I don't think there's going to be an issue with uh, it, it destroying the driver, doing any damage to it in any way. Okay. Well, then the second question is, I would run a short test, and if the short test failed, I'd replace the drive. If the short test passed, I'd run a long test. A long test would just tell you basically, it would scan through the drive and start telling you, I found one error, I found two errors, and it would just, however many errors it found, it would just tell you, and by the end, you'd have a certain amount of errors. I was at the point where if I saw one error, I'd, turn, I'd stop it and replace the drive. Now, I don't know what error means exactly. Is that a bad sector or what? And is that grounds to replace a drive? Um, I, I don't think it's necessarily grounds to replace a drive if it's only one or, you know, a couple of sectors. The issue is, is that, you know, can, if you can remap those areas and you can use them, but it, all drives are going to have sectors that are going to go bad while they're in use. It's a normal process that's actually going to happen. The issue is, can it recover from them? Uh, if you can recover from them, then it gives you a good indication that you're going to be, you know, in, in a halfway decent usable mode. But you do have to kind of use your own judgment to you know are am i doing a backup is this valuable data you know what's your risk from that standpoint you don't know when it's going to go bad and you're right. not going to be able to use it again but are these error when seagate says it's an error is it saying basically saying it found a bad sector or what's an error what does an error mean well their tools are kind of you know i know they're specific to their own uh drives or whatever but the whole point ends up being they're generic. They're kind of generic errors. Like if you actually have a real hard error, most of the time it just gives you like a box and it just has a red box that has a number or something in it and you call them and they don't know themselves. They just have this kind of, you know, generic error. They're supposed to be a little bit smarter from a standpoint of they know their own commands for their own hard drives. So the ones that are, you know, for diagnostics, for test processes, uh, it should be able to run. But it's not, it's, I don't think it's that robust from a standpoint of, yeah, sure, it's great to try to run a test with the manufacturer's tool, right. but seldom does it seem to do anything that anybody else's doesn't do. As a matter of fact, I've seen many times that they buy tools from other manufacturers or mo- other vendors who had nothing to do with them right. or their special stuff at all. Seagate sells a data recovery program on their site. They actually have a Seagate data recovery tool, and it is not their tool. They I bought see. it from our studio. Uh, our studios is you know their standard version is 79 bucks but Seagate relabeled it and calls it Seagate's tool and it's 129 bucks so, on Seagate site same program same program yes interesting so all right well I'd rather use MHDD than C tools just knowing you know knowing that that exists now I mean, there's a chance, obviously, that their tool will know something about the commands on their drives that will be lucky enough to at least give you something back. But most time, most of the time, it fails or gives you a generic error. So I would say maybe use that as a first test and then use something else that actually displays and gives you back more information. And how many errors before you say, okay, this drive is toasted? Well, if you can if you can fix if it's a remap issue and you can reuse the drive, yeah. I mean, I, I would say you know I would continue to probably at least use it in a test process or make sure that I'm backing up if I if I've done that. But if you're running MHDD and you tell it to do a scan, it's going to tell you you know all the sectors and it's going to give you a number about how many will be beyond what it considers normal, and you can base your decision on that. I mean, if you have 350 sectors that are beyond what I would call normal, I would. I would probably consider not using the drive, but if it was only three or four, I might remap them I and see. not use those sectors again. All right. Well, see, this is valuable because the time is is an issue when you're doing the computer repair. You know what I mean? Like you have to determine this fast so you can tell the customer and you can order the drive or get the drive or replace the drive or whatever. Right. And if you just if you you can't take the time and run like you know, 24 hours worth of scans on the thing. So that was what I was curious about. And I think 
you know, my MHDD. Does that stand for my hard drive died, by the way, MHDD? No, no, it's just, uh, it was a coincidence. <laughs> Actually, I never even thought about it until, you know, one, one day I had, you know, something that I had written down and it was MHDD. Uh, <laughs> no, it's a coincidence. Um, it's a, it's like a guy's name, like, you know, Maysoft hard drive diagnostics tool or I something. It actually, it says it on their site somewhere. That's funny because I label my podcast like yeah. MHDD 001002. No, it's completely a coincidence. I did not plan it at all. It was, uh, I, I think I even came up with the name of my company before I even knew. But. <laughs> no, no, I'm not, I'm not saying anything, I'm insinuating anything. <laughs> I just, I was wondering if that was, you know, this just happened to be the same thing. But okay, Scott, I actually found the email from, it was, I was saying Richard, it's from a listener named Roger. And I'm just going to read his email verbatim here, and we'll go over if anything else needs to be addressed. But I think he pretty much answered his questions. He says, um, Steve, I have a few questions for Scott. Number one, how do I know when a drive is going bad? If it shows one reallocated sector, should I replace it or wait till 10 or 100 sectors? Now, you went over that, Scott, and you said maybe around 300, you'd probably think about replacing it. Does it depend on how big the drive is, that how many sectors you should consider bad before you replace the drive? Well, you know, the size of the drive is going to impact the number of, of bad sectors. It's kind of similar to what they did with LCD screens where they would say, oh, I had 10 bad, you know, LEDs or something before I would actually consider the screen bad. Right, Even right. though they were annoying you and that they're in those places. But the more reallocated sectors you have, the slower the drive is. And the reason that is is that, right, so at manufacturing time when they're, when they're building the drive, when they are scanning the drive, if there's a problem with the sector, they actually physically just reallocate the next sector as the next LBA block. So the, the speed of the drive doesn't change. It just says, oh, well, this was a spot and I just skipped it, so right. the next sector is in order. Right. But when you reallocate a sector, it says, okay, it was supposed to be here, but no, it's not going to be here. We have a special space for that that we store it someplace else. So we're going to have to put it over here, and then we're going to have to come back to continue where we were. Yeah. So it's an interruption in the process of the drive. So the more reallocated sectors you have, the slower the response time from the drive during the process of reading those is going to be. I see. I see. Now, I never asked this, and I, I actually don't know myself, to be honest. What is exactly are the mechanics of a bad sector? What does that mean? Well, there's either some damage or some reason that – now, keep in mind that what you have is just this magnetic surface. Right. And that the data that, writ, that is written there is not actually zeros and ones. It's actually like this encoded stream that's kind of a an encoded uh, – kind of looks a little bit like a waveform that's actually written there and then it's uh you know read and written kind of like a record would be okay. and there is a there is a chunk of data uh for each set of blocks so there's a block for like the address information there's a block that says i'm a go and then there's a block that says here's my 512 bytes of data and for each one of these sections there's ecc data so there's error correction code and so it reads the content then it compares it with the ecc and it says well can i repair the whatever the error is or is there some you know, horrible error that has occurred that I cannot recover from? And if the horrible error occurs, then it either if it still knows what the data is, it will reallocate that to a new location. If it, if it can recover from it, there's a threshold. And once the threshold is reached, then it will reallocate the data. But if it's never reached, it just considers, hey, I repaired it on the fly. That's what my error correction code is for. So let's just keep going. And so sometimes it may read that sector eight or ten times before it actually knows that there's you know something I can recover or not recover from. And so, so what will happen though is that you'll get what's called a reallocation flag, and there's 
inside the drive, there's two ways that happens. Sometimes there is a table that will tell you dynamically, go here, or there's actually a flag in the sector that says, I've got a spot that's bad, and I'm going to you know, reallocate you to a new location. So there's a way that, you know, depending on the manufacturer of the drive, they can do that in a couple of different ways. But, uh, but basically, either it's a weak sector, a bad sector, it's a, an area where you know, damage has occurred, and it just can't read or write that data or the ECC data. I see. Now, that includes physical damage, right? Yes, that includes physical damage as well. Gotcha. All right, cool. All right, number two. Is that you? Is that your computer making that little dinging noise, or is that something in my apartment here? That's something in your place. Hang on one sec. Oh, you know what it is? It's the alarm I set to remind tink, me tink. that we have this interview. Yeah. <laughs> All right, hang on one sec. I'm going to handle that. Okay, hang on, Scott. I said it three different times at three different yeah. interviews, so let me just... Let well, me you just... didn't want to miss it this time, did you? Oh, man. <laughs> you would have never talked to me again. <laughs> All right. I understand hard life. I, I've been through it. <laughs> Thanks. Okay, let me just turn it off, otherwise it's going to ding again. Okay, turn that off. Okay. Turn that off. Okay. And third one. Okay, we're good. Sorry about that. No problem. All right, let me uh, read the next question that Roger has here. He says, I have a hard time judging the health of a drive from the smart data. What programs do you use to accurately determine the health of a drive? Most of the drives you work on are already bad, but what about if you wanted to check the status of your own drive or that of a friend's? That's from Roger. Okay. So the main thing with smart is is that most of the tools that you use, they're not really good at telling you what the things mean. Like they will display some content, maybe give you a little red bar, a little thermometer or something. And I generally like to know a little bit more data about the drive and what some of the options are. Like some of them will have like just generic, like the five things that smart can show you that are the same amongst all the drives. But what about the unique things for particular drives that you don't know? So, uh, so one of the things that I would prefer to use is something called G-Smart Control. Now, G-Smart Control is a, it's a free tool. It was originally written for Linux, but it has migrated to all three operating systems, so it can be installed on Linux, Mac, and on Windows. And it can give you some really good detail about the drive itself. It, um, it's a graphical version. It shows you tables, and it'll give you nice descriptions about what each of the items are and what their thresholds are and what they should be and kind of help you determine that, which is what I think a lot of the others haven't done. But it's, it's one word. It's called G-Smart Control. And so if you go to G-Smart Control, it's, uh, it's like a site in Germany or something. They'll have a little setup that will tell you how to install it for each of the operating systems. And I think that you will find that it will give you far more detail about what you're actually trying to figure out um, and, and give you nice, good, concise definitions of what each of those tables mean. And they update it all the time, so they've been adding like information for the blocks once they figure out what they are. Sometimes they're different per manufacturer. Hmm. Good tool. Okay, Scott. No, I, I wanted to ask you another thing. Um, in, in selling my shop, I have some hard drives that I have there from customers that are, are in the to-be-destroyed pile. Now, 
I can't remember if it was you who told me or somebody did that. I, what I was going to do is basically to make sure that this, this, I basically want to destroy these drives so any customer data on there is just gone forever. Um, as, as part of the you know promise I made to the customer to keep their data secure and to destroy the old bad hard drive. Um, I was going to drill a hole basically into the hard drive with a drill bit or drill a screw into the hard drive straight through the platters to to make it, you know, to destroy it. Is that the best way to go about destroying this? Or if you know, if you had to get rid of data or destroy a hard drive, what would be your method of choice? Well, my, my preferred method would be for the drive to still function when I was done and be usable for some purpose, even if it was just for parts. So uh, the first choice that I would actually make would be from the Center for Magnetic Recording Research and Recording that they have a tool that is to erase data, including the bad blocks. So the bad blocks are the problem for most of the tools. They miss the bad blocks, and there's data left behind. But they have a tool that uh, basically does a process that's called Secure Erase. And so the secure erase process is actually part of what the DOD standards for 5220 for sanitation are. And it will actually run a process that will get rid of it by track by track, including these these horrible bad blocks that hmm. are not normally overwritten. So if you were to use something like, you know, D-Ban or, you know, Kill Disk or something, I don't believe that they're going to do any of the bad blocks. But the HDD secure erase process will actually uh, tell the drive it's a it's actually not running its own code it's running the code in the drive to actually do an erase process and there's huh. actually a function for that wow. so uh, so that would be my first choice now depending on the age of the drive because if the drives are older than 2001 They're then none of them are then you're fine then you can use the current stuff to do it to do what, exactly what is the name that. of that program again um, it's from the Center for Magnetic Research and Recording, and it's uh, it's actually called something like HDD Scan or something like that. I'll, I'll find the exact name, but it's called Secure Erase. So if you do a search for Secure Erase, you'll actually find the tool, and it's uh, the tool itself only makes the ATA call. It doesn't actually do anything itself. It actually makes the command uh, through – it calls the command through the ATA command set. Okay. <laughs> You're right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, is it free? Yes, it is a free. It's a uh, again. The tool itself doesn't do anything. It really just makes the call through the ATA command set. So, so I basically can take these drives and reuse them. Yes, exactly. And, and and be confident and feel you know okay consciously that the customer's data is gone. Yeah, it'll actually go through the process of verification and tell you that you know, hey, I'm done and I've erased all the data. And you'll see that uh, you won't because it doesn't normally just do like zeros over the drive either. It actually writes the pattern so that you can actually tell what has actually occurred on the drive and that there's nothing with regards to the user's data. Interesting. Wow, I might have a bunch of hard drives coming my way. Um, all right, so say that the hard drive is you say we don't go that way. Say we just want to destroy it. What's the best way to go about doing destroying the drive? Well, I can tell you functionally, uh, drills fine. But if you uh, if you actually just you know open the drive and sanded the platters, if you did <laughs> if you did any, if you just put anything that even bent a platter or actually caused the platter to crack, because some of them are going to be glass depending on the model and the stuff of the drive, um, they will they will actually shatter. So I see. Interesting. <laughs> I'm not going to open up every drive. I'd rather just put a, a screw through them. But yeah, that'll solve your problem, especially for like the normal human. Uh, it's <laughs> not going to be like you know, the Secret Service is going to come and get your drive and do right. something with it. Right. So 
Well, I'm going to try secure erase first. I didn't even think about that. I, I didn't think there was, there was a way that you could just get rid of everything and you'd, you know, you know, feel good about it. Saying that like the, okay, the customer, your, you know, your data is definitely gone, not able to be recovered. So, well, if you if you go to the Center for Magnetic Recording, you'll actually see it's uh, CMRR dot USC UCSD dot edu. Okay. You'll actually see. Um, a whole FAQ about it. It'll tell you all about why it exists. And it's actually part of the ATA-6 command spec. So it was actually added to the ATA commands for this purpose so that like the DOD or the DOJ did not have to have some special software to erase their disk. And it would also do those bad blocks. Huh. Cool. Great tool. Hey, I also wanted to ask you, and it was about something you said earlier in the podcast. You, you said that the computer doesn't necessarily have to recognize a drive in the BIOS and it could still... Um, access it? Yes, that's correct. Because it's communicating directly through the ATA controller? Is that what it was? Absolutely. That's correct. So somebody who you know doesn't see their drive in the BIOS could, could technically boot into Windows and still communicate with the drive? If you're in Windows, yes, you will have to have a special tool or something that right. knows that can talk to the ATA command set in order to make that happen. There's a lot of DOS tools that do that, and that's hmm. functionally one of the biggest differences. Um, there's, there's also... A change between how you read and write to the drive as well. So, for instance, most drives want to be in, you know, DMA or UDMA mode, but you can switch to PIO mode, which is a lot slower. But the drive may function better in PIO mode, allowing you to recover the data as well. Hmm. So, there's a, there's a couple of different ways that that works. But just because it doesn't show up in the BIOS doesn't mean that data can't be recovered from it in some fashion. Wow, you know, I was using that as like a you know a yardstick, like a definite indicator that the drive was was bad. If it didn't show up in the BIOS, so well, you know, there's a good chance that it might not be usable from your standard, uh, you know, for what you were doing with it with the drive if it didn't show up in the BIOS. But that again doesn't mean that there's not something functional that you can actually do something with it. Right. Wow. Very interesting. It's good to know, and I think it's good for anybody who's in a computer repair field to know that little bit of information too. Uh, let's get into a little something a little little different of a topic here before we end off. We, something we talked about before we actually started the recording, and that's that you are using Windows 7. Let's talk about a little bit about Windows 7. What do you think about it? Well, I, I think that it's much better than Vista. I mean, the embarrassment that Vista was, uh, you know, it wouldn't have taken much to be better. But I've actually been trying to do something to break it. Like, Vista was almost unusable from day one. And most of the time, even when I would deal with it in forensics and data recovery, it would cause me some problem, you know, primarily because of drivers and other functionality, which obviously now we've got two years of drivers that have kind of solved that problem. So we kind of have a new leaping off point with uh, Windows 7. But, but more than that, it's actually responsive and it actually seems to be functionally more stable. And even, even as of yesterday, I was using on one of the same machines that I'm using now, uh, Vista, it was giving me all kinds of problems continually, even with updates and everything. It has been horrible to use the machine. And I finally just said, you know, wipe that machine and reinstall it with Windows 7. And I was up and running in like an hour with everything. It's the easiest installation from a corporate standpoint that I've ever seen. Uh, it joined the net, network and domain virtually flawless, which is, you know, rare. Even the Windows XP world, sometimes you still had to struggle with uh, XP to join the domain and trying to be careful with uh, with names and so on and so on. But uh, it was it was, it was was literally a fairly straightforward, get it up and running and um, haven't had it crash, haven't had a single problem with it after, after installation. I've done a number of installations already and been trying to break it, but uh, mm-hmm. 
I am much more impressed with it. I think it's fundamentally a, a good direction. It's it's worthy of the Windows name, at least at this moment. <laughs> yeah, I, I was actually impressed too, and I've been using. I'm actually using it on this machine I'm recording on right now. But you were the first person I think that has actually used it in a, like a corporate environment, and I was just curious to know how that well, went. And it seems like it's working pretty good. Yeah, I mean, the biggest thing for me was with Vista, functionally, the drives that I was looking at didn't even work with my data recovery software. or I couldn't, you know, talk to them and communicate with them without causing some major problem for the OS. And I've already done a couple of recoveries with Windows 7, and it's at least as a test, you know, routine, it seems like it's functionally working. So I've been able to at least make some progress. Uh, and, and I'm much more impressed with the speed of 64-bit now as well and the driver support that they have in 64-bit. So now I've been doing Snow Leopard too. I'm doing the developer edition of Snow Leopard for Mac. And it's funny to see the two kind of becoming fairly similar. Like I'm actually seeing some of the same things at the same time. Um, kind of like when you hover over the toolbar across the bottom and it shows you the number of windows that are open, you'll notice that like if you're in IE or something that there's multiple tabs, you will actually get like little thumbnails of each tab right. across there so you can actually select one. And for the first time ever, Snow Leopard now for Macs actually has a similar function. It used to be if there was a tab or a separate window that was shrunk down, you did not get a layout for that. So even even Mac is actually now has a, you know, in their... Uh, in their special views and stuff now has the thumbnails actually showing the same way. <laughs> Are you serious? Yeah. I uh, think so they I'm, stole that right from Windows, didn't they? Well, I don't know who stole it from who, but uh, I, I mean, I would say Snow Leopard's probably been in development a shorter period of time, but that's that's not something that existed in Vista. So Vista didn't show you the separate tabs. Right. So they only showed you the one window. Right. So I don't, I don't know who stole it from who, but... Um, <laughs> I think the layout in Windows 7 is better than the layout that I saw in Snow Leopard. Um, now, Snow Leopard has a little bit more advanced stuff from a standpoint of it's pushing 64-bit far more than, than Windows is. Windows has so many 32-bit pieces of code that are still running, but compatibility was better for 32-bit code in Windows 7 than it is with, with Snow Leopard. Snow yeah. Leopard's pushing the developers. Now, how, have you noticed like a performance difference or anything like that in Snow Leopard, or do you recommend it? Should I, should I put it on my machine? I think Snow Leopard is is awesome. Uh, I don't think again we're running developer edition, so you've got like a couple of you know you've got a month or so before the actual release comes out. I would say um, really watch the app compatibility. Pick the five or six apps that you use the most and double check and make sure that they've updated their code because some things uh, will not work. Like for instance, you know, like iStat menu bar that runs across the top mm -hmm. currently is only 32-bit code, so it won't run in the status bar across the top. I see. And so they're coming out with a new version or something, and I don't know if it's strictly because it's 32-bit, but you can actually see like when you go into the control panel on the Mac, there will be oh, if it's 32-bit, I have to quit the control panel and reopen it in 32-bit mode in order to actually be able to see something running. Huh. So yeah, there's 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 definitely going to be potential. It will be a good upgrade for you when it actually comes out. But just make sure that the day that you do it, that all the other tools that you use primarily have been updated already. Right, right. Okay. There's a bunch. There's a bunch of things. I don't know if you use Quicksilver, but Quicksilver I've had problems with on Snow Leopard. And there's have you used Quicksilver before? I don't use it. Well, you should. It's awesome. Quicksilver so, is like the best Mac program ever. I wish <laughs> I had it on a PC, really? but. Uh, but at least from that standpoint, the initial code doesn't work. There's It's been forked, and there actually is a piece of code that runs correctly now on macOS, but it's not 100%. It's not uh, quite all there yet. 
Ah, that sucks. Well, Quicksilver is yeah. for like easily launching programs and stuff, right? Yeah, but it does so much more. It's actually kind of like uh, it, it's like you really don't have to think about what you're doing. You can just like type in a person's name and hit tab, and it'll automatically launch Entourage and open up a you know an email to the guy. Really? But it, it does so many more things than just launch applications. Huh. It's 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 more like a uh, a an ability to talk to the computer without having to really know a command. Wow. Yeah, I got to dig into that. I've heard good things about that. All right, cool. Well, I think we're going to wrap it up, Scott. Um, you know, tell us again uh, where you're going to be next and uh, anything else that you want to want to plug, do it right now. Well, the biggest thing that I'm going to be doing next is probably going to be uh, teaching a class in San Diego. So I'll be teaching a class for SANS in the middle of September. So if you want to know about physical data recovery and you want to rebuild drives and understand rate arrays and things, that's the class to be in. And so if you go to uh, if you go to SANS.org and you look for SEC 606, that will be the next big thing. Uh, and then following that, I'll be doing the Kentucky HTCIA um, I'm speaking there as well, and it'll probably be on Raider Rays or something along those lines as well. Cool. Well, thanks again, Scott. And again, your hard your website is myharddrivedie.com. <laughs> and that's going to wrap up this week's episode. Um, I'll see you in a month. Thanks. That's going to wrap up this week's episode of My Hard Drive Died. Don't forget to visit podnuts.com and check out the laptop repair video collection for sale. Again, you could pre-order it for $47, or after September 1st, you could buy it at the release date for $67. Thanks again. See you later.